morning, church. So good to see you uh, in spirit, because <laughs> I can't see you with my eyes. Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, so, so blessed here this morning. What a beautiful day we had yesterday, and able to get out. It was warm. Maybe some, some of you got to catch up on some yard work, or just even have some precious time with your, your beloved, you know, Jesus, and just... Uh, or family members like that, and just really just relax and enjoy each other, right? That's wonderful. Well, we continue in the book of Galatians. Um, again, one of Paul's earliest letters, somewhere written around AD 48. We've come as far as chapter 3. You know, as we look at this, and, you know, Paul is, in essence, what's he really been doing? I mean, you look at chapter 1 and his greeting and prologue, chapter 2 and, and all the way down to chapter 3, what, what has he spent the better part, or even really the better part of this, half of this letter, he will be when we get done with our study today, as the Lord leads, it, it's all about the gospel. It's not about Paul's position. You know, while he does explain his authority as apostle, as an apostle that way. It, it's not about um, the meanderings and the, the necessarily the traditions for the Gentiles in this Galatian, this, this church in Galatia, this Gentile church. It's about these men and potentially women that have come into a church that God birthed, that God established. And they began to teach an alternate gospel. That's what it is. That's everything. This, this alternate gospel compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that our Lord and Savior, our sweet Jesus, went to the cross, that we would be forgiven our sins. Anything that's added to that or taken away from that is an alternate gospel. And Paul has spent the better half of the first few chapters in Galatians trying to warn these children that he loves, those that God has entrusted to him, to not follow a false gospel, to not really follow men that go after these uh, different rituals or traditions, or even try to put them back under a law because somehow they think that's going to... Um, bring liberty when we know our scriptures tell us the law brings death, death to all of us. So Paul's going to pick this back up in one of the, I think, one of the most significant chapters in all of your Bible. The chapter is titled, and maybe you see that subscript or that script upon the top of your chapter heading there, saying justification by faith. You know, as we look at this chapter, Paul's going to carefully and systematically break down in a very, I think, a very understandable, a very precise, direct way for these new or young, if I could say, Christians, and as well for the legalists and the Judaizers that maybe grew up as Jews and have now become completed Jews as Christians— but for whatever reason, whether it's through the enemy, their flesh, or just a plain out attack on the church and division, decide that they're going to come in and bring an alternate gospel. And Paul just can't, Paul just can't stand that. He can't allow that. 
and neither can we. There's really a quest for truth today. You know, I think we've gotten to an age where it's hard to know what we can trust with what we read, hear, what we see on the news, media. You know, we're in an age where I, I can't remember any other time like this. You know, growing up, uh, often my parents, my mother, my father at different times would turn on the news and you would see different things. Now, certainly in the 80s and 90s, I understand it got a little, a little skewed politically as well. But there was a time where we, we could focus and we could unify together under a common interest. And what we see before us today is a country where the leadership, quite honestly, not all, by the way, not all leaders, but much of the leadership is in shambles. Everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody is seeking after their own. People are either on one vast spectrum or on the other, and no harmony, no desire for peace. We have governors now telling us that they're putting up fences along beachfronts in New York State. And yet we have states like Georgia, which just allowed churches to begin to meet in person this last week. Such a you know, disparity, it's hard to reconcile between the two. But friends, I, wanna, I want to make it certain that God's truth prevails anything Anything that you're going to hear, see, touch, smell, anything going around you, the one thing that you have in front of you this morning, this word, the word of God, he breathed this. It's our instruction, man. It is the only thing that keeps us sane in a crazy lost and dying world. And I thank God for his word. I, I certainly worship Jesus, but I thank God for his word. So let's bow our heads and pray, and we'll begin in the Word of God. Father, as you just overheard, Lord, we love you, and we are so grateful for your truth. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, Lord. Thank you for men that you've raised up today, Jesus, that are willing to stand in the gap. Women that you've raised up today, Lord, that are standing in the gap. Lord, not getting caught up in the political fray. Lord, my citizenship, while I'm an American, my citizenship's heavenly. Lord, I, I'm a sojourner. Uh, my, my job isn't to try to save this country. My job is to, Lord, share Jesus Christ with every soul that you might save them and that we would all be together in eternity. It, it, it trumps everything. And so, God, I pray right now, as we all seek truth, may we come to the simplicity and the direct and sincere truth that you have for us. And may we come and feast upon this like we've never have before, Lord. 
May you write this on the tablet of our hearts and seal it. Keep it from the fowler and the enemy that's trying to destroy. And Lord, I pray your will be done, Jesus. I pray it's done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. In your holy name we pray these things, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, Galatians chapter 3. Again, I, I hope you have a pen and paper in your home. You got some notebooks. Here in the church, we have some notebooks in the back, but I, I pray you have some. We're going to be going through several different passages this morning. I don't know how far we'll get. If we'll get through half of the chapter or the whole chapter, we also have uh, a blessed time of communion as it is the first Sunday of the month and how I look forward to um, celebrating this with you all um, here today as you're in your homes and then also, uh, Lord willing, next month in person. Um, as you probably saw the email I sent out yesterday, we're looking to start a plan here together for reopening the church for uh, in-person services. So we're going to be gathering. Please be praying for that. Um, and if you didn't get that email, email the church or call the church, and we'll, uh, we'll get you on that email list. Oh, foolish Galatians. <laughs> Boy, that's a real interesting way of uh, influencing people and winning friends, huh? How to win friends and influence people. But Paul had nothing on Dale Carnegie, right? <laughs> uh, foolish Galatians. This, the idea behind foolishness here in the Greek, I I ignorance. He's describing an ignorance. He's like, ignorant. You're ignorant. You don't... Um, not, it's not that you don't know, but you choose not to know. I, I think that's more scary. Oh, ignorant. Oh, those who choose to, to not see in Galatia, in Harrisburg, in the Western East Shore, right? Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Now, we don't use that term today, right? I, I can't think of ten, since the Salem trials that we, we don't really use that term, but what it means is to simply exert evil influence over someone. So if you were in a party with someone like that or a group, a setting like that, and you were going to bewitch them, it doesn't mean necessarily casting a, a curse or a spell on them as we would think today, but it means to actually take evil and exert that influence upon somebody, whether it's through your words, through your actions, or through suggestion. And that's what Paul is saying. And, and you know who he's speaking about. He's speaking about the Judaizers that have been coming around the legalists that have been offering an alternative gospel. And he's saying, who has done this? Who has, who has sown this discord, this evil influence? That you should not obey, please look at this with me and underline it in your Bibles. Obey what? The truth. You know, friends, there is truth. Some of you may say, well, truth is subjective. No, no, it's not. According to the word of God, truth is not subjective. There is truth. Truth has everything to do with your ideology, what you believe. You can believe that something you form with your hands is a pagan god. You know, we would laugh at that today because we'd look and say, certainly, of course not. That would be superstitious. 
And yet, I want you to think about our athletic teams. And I want you to think about many times during Super Bowls or tournaments, often we, as supporting fans, do what? We might grow out our beards. We might not change our socks, right? I don't know. I don't want to know what else you're not changing. You get the point, all right? We, we, we do certain superstitious things, right? And we do those in, in, in hope that it will somehow encourage or help our team to win. Now, I know I, I'm saying this in jest because it's, it's a simple, lighthearted way of explaining uh, it's still in our DNA. It's still in our DNA to somehow go back and take this superstitious this way. And, and let me ask you a question. Do you honestly think you not shaving for a month is going to help your team win. You want to help your team win? Pray to God. That's the only thing that's going to help your team win, okay? Uh, and, and if they're praying unto the Lord, right? But that's not truth. That's not truth, is it? Truth is objective. Truth is something that Proverbs and much of your Psalms talk about is wisdom, seeking out after her in the feminine, and that you would seek and that you would find and you would hold on to. Every single jot and tittle that you have in this entire instruction manual, love letters, 66 of them, the books of the Bible, contain truth. It's impossible for it not to be true. Because God's very name is held in order of that. Well, pastor, I don't know what you mean when you you make that statement. Did Jesus not say that he lifted his word above his very name? He's tied it to his identity. He's told us in chapters of Timothy that what? That it's God-breathed, that it's inspired. There is no um, other way. It's not, well, I believe some of the Bible, but yet I don't accept these other axioms, these other aspects. No, it's objective. It's, it's very truthful, it's very factual, and it's complete. It's complete. So Paul says, why are you not obeying the truth, the truth that I've given you, the gospel, the truth? Why are you not obeying that? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed, okay, that word in the Greek means in via a public speaking and or reading. So it's interesting. We get a little bit in the Greek here what Paul was alluding to. He's alluding to the time he was with the Galatians as he traveled through Galatia in that area, a time where he would have read the word of God or he would have spoke of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, okay? It speaks to the public um, reading. And it says, who is clearly portrayed among you as what? As crucified. That's important. That, that they should not do what? Do you, do you remember what he left off in verse 21? Why did he go back and, and describe that he was crucified? Because he said, look, if you go back to the law, then Christ died in vain. 
then Christ died in vain. Which is why Paul comes back and says, hey, you've been preached that Christ didn't die in vain. No, he was resurrected, and he's the first fruits of resurrection. And you also, when you die with Christ, you live with him again, right? Speaking of, you know, being born again, born in the Spirit. That's what he's saying here. And now he's going to go through and he's going to address here in really verse 2 all the way, well, through the better part of verse 5. He's going to address four questions as, as typical Pauline style and fashion. Paul will often uh, discern through the Holy Spirit or whether it was just something that was maybe uh, verbally spoken to him where, where we don't have that information. But he's going to go through and address four specific questions here that either were on their minds or was something that the Holy Spirit inspired that they work through. And Paul's going to, again, in typical Pauline fashion, get it right out there because he's going to be very direct and very sincere. This only I want to learn from you. That's a pretty direct statement from Paul. He's saying, I have one, well, four questions, but I have one point for you. Did you receive the Spirit by works? of the law, or by the hearing of faith? He says, hold it a minute. You got saved. Church of Galatia, I came in, I came to you on a missionary trip, and I, I spoke the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You believed and you were saved. He says, now, I want to draw you back to that. Were you saved because some works that way? Was it of the law or, or, or was it truly by hearing in faith? Look, look with me, please, at Romans. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. We clearly learn a very important instruction as a biblical axiom in the Word of God, one of the ones that many of us have probably memorized. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what? The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Reading our Bibles is a way of increasing our what? Our faith. Why? Because if this wasn't true, and it was a fairy tale, that certainly wouldn't increase my faith. Would it increase yours? Of course not. But when I read something that's true, absolute, and I begin to believe on that, and it's proved out to be true, that does what? It naturally just strengthens my faith and continues to strengthen it, and continues to strengthen it. I liken it to steps. I often say the journey of Christendom, or Christianity, or for the Christian, are simply mere steps of faith, continually. Steps of faith. Uh, as if you were walking on water, or I, I vision lily pads. Some of you know what those are. Or if you prefer a stone, since Jesus says, I build this foundation on the rock right? The stone, that you would step on these and you make your way 
on the path God has for you. And you don't begin to sink in the water or whatever's around you. Well, that's a good word for today. Because even though there could be storms, there can be fears, there can be all these things going on around you, you walk on firm foundation. Didn't Jesus liken it to a similar example? He says, where are you building your house? Are you building it on the sand in which is going to give way? Or are you building it on a firm foundation that when the water and the storms come and hit, it doesn't pull you under. It doesn't come out from under you. When you have an ideology based on a subjective nature, that means an ideology based on something of man's imagination, like I said, whether it's shaving for or not shaving for a sporting event, or worshiping anything between your soul and God, we call that idolatry, you have a loose foundation. But when you actually begin to build your foundation on truth, and you have, for the builders out there, you'll appreciate this, good footers. You've dug a good depth. You've gone to virgin earth. You've gone through and you've got the right PSI for concrete. You've gone and you've formed your footers. And then you've poured the concrete. You've allowed them to harden. And then you know what you do? You erect walls. And the house sits on the corners, the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, of the home. And that's where the majority of the weight is supported. And if done right, and I say done right because with our building techniques now, uh, especially within the last 50 to 75 years, most houses will see settling. You'll see above your door jams some cracking. But I can remember my father, he was a construction worker, iron worker, and eventually a building inspector. He, he always said, son, if you go down far, far, enough, far enough and you set a proper foundation, he says, and you let it sit, you let it actually sit for a while, establish it, then you go and build on it. He says, that's what your grandfather did and your great-grandfather and your great-grandfather after him for generations. He says, we never saw cracks. We never saw settling because it was solid. It was firm. I have that in my mind as Paul is speaking to these men saying, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? He says, okay, first, did salvation come by works? No. You were all saved, and you didn't even know the law. You, weren't, you didn't grow up uh, under the law as a Jew or a Hebrew. You grew up as a Gentile. You got saved. He's speaking to the Church of Galatia, predominantly Gentiles. He's saying, you got saved. You knew nothing of the law. And it didn't stop you. You placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He says, number two, he says, now that you're saved is the work of sanctification. Look at that. That's what he's saying here. Are you so foolish? Have you begun in the spirit and now are you being made perfect by the flesh? Are you going back 
to the law or to the works? You think that's going to be, if you were saved? <laughs> he makes it so simple. He says, if you were saved by faith, do you think that sanctification is now going to require you to go back and, and build on works? He says, no. He says, it's built on faith as well. He says, because you're trusting in Jesus Christ to do the sanctifying. He who's begun the good work in you will do what? Finish the good work. It's, it's really, if you want to use any part of that that's a partnership, it's what we sang this morning. I surrender all. That's your part. That's my part, right? That's what Paul is saying. He says, are, are you foolish that you're believing these lies? That somehow the, the, the flesh is going to make you perfect? Look, look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16, please. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16. Who has come not according to the law? Who is he speaking of? He was speaking of a, a, a priesthood in context in Hebrews here. The need for a, a new priesthood, okay, of the order or a higher order than even the order of, he's of the order of Melchizedek, right? In the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 15, if you were reading it in context, right? You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But but look what it says, Jesus Christ, he's speaking of Messiah, Jesus. He says in verse 16, who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandment, the flesh, that's what it just wrote there, works of the flesh, right? He says, but according to the power of an endless life. What does that mean, a life that doesn't end? It means that one who has always existed and always will. It doesn't end. It's a life without end. How can that be possible? Well, God is eternal. Jesus Christ is eternal. And he doesn't, other than when he came here on earth for you and I, he will never die again. He was resurrected. And because he is resurrected, you and I likewise will be resurrected. And that's what Paul is drawing this back to, sanctification. He says, all these things. Now, why is he saying this? Where am I coming up with these ideas that, that somebody in the church was disagreeing? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look, look in your own Bible right here at verse 10 in chapter 4, right? Look at, look at verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. He says, you know what you're doing? You're going back to the ceremonial practices. Do you see that? that? That's what they were doing. They were going, these Gentiles that had gotten saved were going because of the Judaizers trying to convince them that they needed to be under the law. They started taking the ceremonial practice of Moses that was given to them, and they started to follow, observe days, months, and seasons, and years. Well, that's not enough. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Indeed, I, Paul, say that if you being become circumcised, do you see that? What, what, what's that mean? That means that now they were going to take a ritual, a ritual that God had given Abraham under the Abrahamic covenant that he was called to be circumcised. But by the way, and I'll draw your attention to this inscription in a little bit, did God come to Abraham first? And was it by faith that Abraham believed and then Abraham was circumcised? Or was Abraham circumcised first as a works, and then he believed? 
Well, you know the answer to that question. Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and later on he was circumcised. Okay? I say that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. That's a pretty strong statement from Paul there. He says, it's going to profit you nothing at all. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire that to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. <laughs> Do you hear what Paul's saying there? He's saying even those Jews that are trying to convince you to get circumcised, because then you'll be under the law, he says they don't even keep the law perfectly. He says, and if they're not keeping the law perfectly, what are they boasting in? They're boasting in what? Have you ever heard guys saying, oh, man, I got a hundred people that just listened to me preach today, and man, they got saved, and it all, oh, you know, yay, me, and the pats on the back, and oh, yeah, oh, man, I'm, I'm anointed. I'm anointed, baby. Look at me. You can't touch this, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You've, you've, you've... <laughs> You've heard, I picture my wife at home going, he didn't just say that. You, you, turned around, you turn around and you, you know, you, as though it's somehow a work of man. All right, no, it's a work of God. It's got nothing to do with the man. You don't need any man. You don't, I'm, I'm not needed. Any, any man could come up here and teach the word of God and praise Jesus. People will get saved because there's truth in the word and it doesn't return void. Well, that's what Paul's talking about in, in, in relation to sanctification. He says, now, now do you, are you going to go backwards? What did Jesus say about going backwards? He says, the kingdom of God is not fit for someone that's going to look backwards, right? He says, those that put their hand on the plow and look forward, not to continue to look back. He draws our attention away from looking back. He says, don't look back. You look forward to the kingdom of God, Right? Because you're not fit if you're looking back. You're not going to plow what? A straight line. I've told you my, I've shared my stories. If you've been with us for years or you, you've heard, you know, I, when I lived in New York and I was upstate, I used to have a, a tractor and I would, you know, go to mow and had a, you know, enough land in the back. And I, I tried it one day. I lined up the corner of the house with the, the line I wanted to mow. And I turned around here and I, I looked back, I looked straight and I went and I, I thought the rear of the tractor was in perfect alignment with the corner of the house. I ran and did it. Then what I did is I, uh, I mowed it. It looked kind of straight. I turned around, went into the house, went up to the second floor. We had a bathroom. I was up able to get over the land and kind of get an aerial view. And I looked, and to my surprise, but not according to God's word, truth, my line veered off to the right. But if I was down on the ground, from my perspective, it looked straight. Isn't that interesting? But when I got up more from an aerial perspective, I began to just see how off that line was. Isn't that interesting? My perspective, God's perspective. Hmm. One of those is absolute and always right. And that's certainly not mine. So he turns around and says, look, it was by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish? You've begun in the spirit, and now you're being made perfect by the flesh. You think that's actually going to happen? You turn your eyes from the cross to the law? He says, no. Number, verse 4. Number 3 here, if you're counting. This is the third question, but in verse 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? 
So just think about that. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was vain? What's he saying? Was all the persecution of the church for nothing? Was everything that you have been facing or faced up into this point, if you're going to go back and believe that lie and walk away from Jesus and the cross, and you're going to go back to a law, everything you've been through, was it for nothing? Did it serve no purpose? Certainly not. And then look at verse 5 here. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, he asks the fourth question, does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Boy, man, Paul just laid it down hot. He turned around and in four simple, very concise questions, he destroyed the entire argument of works, the entire argument of the law, but he's not done. He's just getting warmed up, but he just laid it down hot, and he's like, and so let me bring you back to the point of Jesus, the one who works the miracles. He goes, did he turn around and make it a matter of the law? Did he go and say, hey, when you go home, top your head and rub your tummy five times, turn in a circle and hop? No, he didn't. He said, because of your faith, you have been made well. You see, this is an important declaration. He says that it ultimately was up to God, who is the miracle worker. We sing that song, you know, miracle worker. It's Jesus. It's God. If you want to see this, turn to Acts chapter 14. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Look at verse 3. Therefore they stayed for a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the world of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. He says, by their hands. But who was doing it? The Lord. Do you see that? The Lord working miracles, right? Um, look at verses uh, 8, right in that same chapter. You can continue reading. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Then the man heard Paul speaking. Paul observed him intently and seeing that he had faith to be what? Healed. He believed. He believed that God was going to heal him, and God did heal him. Sometimes the answer is no, friends. Sometimes the answer is yes. We want to hear yes all the time. I know in the church we always want to hear yes. You know, Lord, heal, please. I think it's an important point. He who supplies the Spirit. You've been given the Holy Spirit, and that's from God the Father. Right? Jesus had to ascend so that the Spirit would come down upon us. And he works miracles. And he doesn't do it by any law. There's no law there, right? He, he does it by the hearing. Hearing of what? Well, the word of God. The testimony of truth that's in your soul from Jesus. The spoken word of Christ in you. And you believe on that in faith. 
Now he's going to go and he's going to begin to bring up Abraham in verses 6 through 9, and he's going to draw their attention to specifically the idea of even when you go back to the beginning, it was never by the law or works. Because before the law even existed, there were men, Old Testament saints, that were believing and by faith, you know, righteousness was accounted to them. So he's saying this is not a new belief. Now, why is this important? Because you have to remember again, these were not Hebrews. These were not mostly Jews. They're mostly Gentiles. They didn't have that foundation. They didn't grow up and go to Hebrew school. They didn't grow up and understand the law. All that was happening was men who were Judaizers, we call them because they were Jews that believed that you, know, you had to keep the law to be saved. They were coming in and saying, look, we know better. We know the law. We know Abraham. We know Moses. We know Isaac and Jacob. We know all of the prophets and all of the principles in the Old Testament. We would call it, they would call it the Torah or the Tanakh. And they would go through and they'd say, we, would, we know all of this. And, and you, you don't know everything. You, you, you only had this man, Paul, tell you that by faith in Jesus that you'll be saved. Oh, you're missing the other part of the equation. It's, it's Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. You also have to keep the ceremonial practices. You also have to turn around and, you know, do this and do that with ritual and tradition. And, and so what they were doing is they were playing on their, in some ways, like Paul said, on their ignorance, they didn't know necessarily the foundation of this. So they're hearing these things and they're saying, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But Paul draws them back with the four questions and goes, what? That makes no sense at all. Let's go back and actually look at what they're talking about. Let's dig a little deeper. Let's look at the data. Let's take a look at the data, right? Because we can make Things appear a whole lot of ways. Boy, we can relate to that today, can't we? I mean, with a pandemic going on, we can make things look a whole lot of different ways. But until we go back behind the scenes and look at the real data, we're doing what? We're speculating, right? We're, we're, we might be making decisions, but we're not necessarily informed. They're not informed decisions. So Paul draws them back here. Look at verse 6. Just as Abraham, he goes back, who... Many of the Jews, if, if you don't know this or you, you haven't been with us a while, uh, Abraham was considered the father of the Jews, right? By the way, he was a Gentile that, that Jesus, you know, God the Father came to and, and made a covenant with him and said, uh, you know, Abraham, I will give you, you're going to follow me, you're going to leave Ur the Chaldees. His father, you know, was a, was a idol maker. You're going to leave Ur the Chaldees. You're going to come out. I'm going to bring you to a new land. I'm going to establish a people under you, and they're going to be a people separated unto me, holy and set apart, um, God's chosen people, not because there was anything spectacular necessarily about them, but because God was going to show favor to them that they would be, in his God's plan, a witness to the other nations that would be around. That, so if, if you're Jewish, you, Abraham is considered a father in the faith. So as they would probably speak to the Gentile church, they would say, well, our father Abraham said, and this is what Paul's addressing. So just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So if you look back, just go in quickly in your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 15. You can get a quick 
look at this here in Scripture. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he believed, speaking of Abraham, or Abram at the time, and he believed in the Lord, and he, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you a land to inherit. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. They brought him all these. He cut them open in two, and he walked down the middle of this, and he did not cut the two birds. And what he did is he basically was establishing a covenant. He was a set, at that time um, in the patriarchs. That's how they did that. They would take animal sacrifice, cut them, split them down, walk between the center, and that ratified the covenant. Okay, and that's exactly what we see here. But even before he did any of that, Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him. He believed in God. Right now, I'm going to ask you a very important question, and I already alluded to this earlier. Was this before or after the circumcision? We know, right? We know it was before the circumcision. Well, I want to see it with my eyes. Good. Turn to chapter 17. Look at verse 24. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Do you see that? So he believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, for faith. He believed, right? And he believed in the Lord, and he was accounted to him for righteousness. He was in right living, right standard with God because of his faith in God. And it was not because he circumcised himself. That, was, that, had, that had nothing to do with the fact of his belief. Belief came first, right? He believed. And then God, for the Jewish people had said, you know, at that time, the Hebrews, you be circumcised and set apart that way, okay? Now, here's a church in Galatia. They're not predominantly Jewish. We know that in Acts chapter 15, which hasn't necessarily happened yet, we know that the council hasn't met together and declared this, but it was already declared to Paul through revelation from Jesus Christ. We covered that in chapter 1 that the Gentiles were not to be put under the law. That was already settled. There was no ceremonial practices that they were to follow. There was nothing of the law that they were to follow, other than what we would describe as the moral law, right? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. The, the, what we call the moral law. But none of the ceremonial practices. Because Jesus says he doesn't take a wineskin that's already been used and fill it with new wine. Because he knows that the fermentation process will cause that wineskin to grow and burst and explode. And what's going to happen? All the wine that you just poured in is going to be all over the ground. Not going to be able to be used. Right? So he, he, he alluded to that. He says, no, I'm not taking the old and somehow mixing it with the new and coming up with some new, you know, religion. He says, No. It's always been about faith. It, it, it's always been about relationship. He said, so look at Abraham. He says, that's a, that's a great example. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Now, he's going to make a strong point here. And as we continue to read through chapter 3, he's going to make the point, Jew or Greek, you are brought into that same 
relationship with Abraham. After all, Abraham was what again? He was a Gentile. Let's not forget that. Look at John chapter 8, verse 39. I love to go to the Gospels because Jesus spoke on this himself. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 39, the rabbis and the religious leaders, you know, they said to him, Abraham is our father. They did exactly what we see going on in Galatia, nothing new under the sun, right? Abraham's our father. He's the father of the Jews. And look what Jesus says. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. What was the works of Abraham? Abraham believed by faith, and it was accounted to him by righteous, to righteousness, right? He says, if you were really the sons of Abraham, or you were really following Abraham, then guess what you would do? You'd be believing in me by faith. You'd believe in Jesus by faith. He says, but you're not doing that either. You're not the sons of Abraham. You know nothing of him. You know of him by name and, 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 and by writing or by testimony, or, or what you've heard. Well, didn't Jesus say that same thing to the Christian? He says, there are many a Christian that will say to me, Lord, Lord. He will say, but I did not know you. Depart me from me, you workers of iniquity. What was he talking about? That even there will be Christians that have never truly made a decision for Jesus Christ, a true faith in who God, Messiah Jesus, says he is. Maybe they followed a crowd. Maybe they wanted fire insurance. There's a whole lot of reasons, all of them bad. The only true centrality of the Christianum is faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, when you have that faith in Christ, you will do the works of Christ, right? He says you can expect these things to be done and far greater than what you've seen me do. Have we not seen healing in the church? Have we not seen people healed of cancer here? Have we not seen people healed of back pain and different things? It was the Lord Jesus who did these things. But we witnessed miracles before us today. We witnessed them. Paul's drawing this back so that they understand the truth. Again, truth will set you free. Verse 9, or 8, excuse me. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Do you, do you see the distinction that Paul just made there? Between the alternate gospel that they had been preached of religion, traditions, and rituals compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? It says that, the scripture, I love that Paul goes right back to the word of God. For seeing that God would justify the Gentiles, this is not new, Paul's saying. This was already preordained. That you in Galatia here would believe. This is preordained. That the gospel of Abraham, right? Gospel to, excuse me, of Abraham, or to Abraham, which is God, the gospel of God that way, beforehand was given by God that you would see this. In all the nations, you shall be blessed. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Please, look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at a few passages here. 
I'd like you to turn to verse 17. Look at how God has gone before already and allowed certain circumstances, different things to happen so that those who did not know him, including those that do, they would see the manifestation of God moving upon people, upon humanity. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Do you see that? That's powerful. God was saying that he was speaking even to an unbeliever, Pharaoh, speaking back to Exodus and their deliverance, how Scripture, how it was already determined that God would use truth like that to, to, to go right to Pharaoh and say, through you, in spite of you, maybe a better way of putting it, my power will be declared and everybody will see it and can't miss it. And they had 400 years plus of slavery. They were being beaten. They were being told to make bricks and not have ample supply. They were slaves. They were quarantined and trapped to this one little area of Goshen. They could travel nowhere else. And God said, I allowed that so that upon this day that everybody would see all the other nations. Because even when God delivers them and they cross over the Red Sea and before they get to Kadesh Barnea and they start going in and they see the Canaanite lands, they say, we have heard about you. We've heard about your God. Your God delivered you. Your God parted the Red Sea. Your God destroyed Pharaoh and beat Pharaoh. The testimony of God had gone far beyond even where the Jews or the Hebrews at that time had traveled. I wonder where the testimony of God is going today during this pandemic. When many a people had not previously put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, now believe. Because they've been faced with an ultimate reality. They're not in control. The money and the system they put their trust in is not in control. The governors and the politicians and all those in power are not in control. God is in control, and he always has been, and he works through the unbeliever and the believer, but he does all for his testimony and glory. And God will deliver us and is already delivering us from this because the first reports that we had gotten out of China were astronomical. The number of men and women that were going to die. Look, one death is too many. But I mean, do you realize how many times the models have changed on this thing? Whether you're in the camp of you believe it's 3% or 4% or whether you believe it's 0.05%, look, either way, do you understand that God has put his hand to withhold the destruction that could have been done through this disease, this virus? It could have been hundreds of millions. But once again, God is declaring his sovereignty, his power, his glory. He says, don't miss these things. Look back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. 
Genesis 12, verse 3. Here he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in all, circle that, the families of the earth shall be blessed through Abraham. Paul is now beginning to make this argument to the church of Galatia that they, they are being brought in or they have been brought in to the family of God in which Abraham was a part of. But that family was not based on a law. That family was based on those who trusted in God by faith. That's the proclamation that is being made here. And you can read Genesis chapter 18, 18, since we're there. If you look to Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, look what he says. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations there shall be what? Blessed by him again. Look at Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You can look at chapter 26, verse 4. And I will make your descendants multiply. And all the stars of heaven, I will give your descendants all, the, all these lands. And in your seed, all the nations, see that? Of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the Jewish nation. That's the point he's making here, Paul. Look at 28, 14. That it was already predetermined that the Gentiles that would get saved would come into the fold, Jew and Gentile. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, look, we want to be careful. I'm not sitting there and saying that God doesn't have a specific plan for a specific people. God does. You mean you read Jeremiah 31, 31. We've already entered that new covenant, but he has promises. Ezekiel chapter, you know, 40, right? Matthew chapter 24 in context is for the Jewish people. He's not speaking to the Gentiles. He's not speaking to, he's speaking predominantly in context to the Jewish people. There is no replacement theology. The church has not replaced the Jews as God's chosen people. That's not what he's making a declaration here for. What he's saying is that when you look at the family of God, the family of God is made up of male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. He's, he's defining it, and he'll make it very, very clear as we get to the end of chapter 3, and you look at chapter 4, he's going to make it very clear. He's saying this is what it's about. So he says you don't have to go back and go back under a law. And go back under all these other things to try to achieve something that's already been given to you through Jesus Christ. That's the point. That's the whole point here. He made a distinction. Look at verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing in Abraham. I, I love this. Turn to John chapter 10 verse 35. John chapter 10, verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. What, what, why, do I, why do I bring that up? Why do I love this? Because we begin to see the absolutes and the certainty and the trust of God's word. And the scripture cannot be broken. God's promises cannot be 
removed that way. God doesn't change his word. He doesn't change his mind. He's the ancient of days. When God declared it from the beginning, as we just read in those four or five passages in Genesis, when God said and declared that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations, that promise was written in stone. And it cannot be changed. It cannot be modified or ratified. It is 100% certain. Scripture cannot be broken. That's why I drew you there so you could, you could see it yourself. Turn, turn in your Bible to 2 Peter, please. Let's look at um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. If you got to the book of John, 1 John, you've gone too far. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. What he's saying there is no prophecy in Scripture is of a private origin, where it comes from. It all hails from God. It is not up to the individual that gets to then determine what prophecy or what word, prophecy can be a word of knowledge, don't forget that. Prophecy doesn't always mean foretelling, which Scripture does, 27% of it. But it can also be a word of knowledge. It, could also be, it can also be encouragement. Scripture can be, you know, prophecy means that as well, right? So what he's saying here is he's saying, knowing at first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation or any private origin. It's not for somebody individually to contribute to. God is the one that's birthed it. God is the one that's inspired Scripture. God is the one that has breathed it and brought it to life. Well, why is that important in context? For the same reason. Because what Paul is doing is he's bringing a harmony to all of Scripture. He's saying you can't take one portion of Scripture, like Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 14, right, or 18, Genesis chapter 22, Genesis chapter 26, and Genesis chapter 28. You can't take all those, which all speak about how Abraham would be a blessing to the nations, and then come through and say to the Christian, you need to go back and be under the law when God just spoke no, through no private interpretation to Paul through direct revelation and said, the Gentile is not to go back to the law. No, the Gentile has actually been liberated. And oh, by the way, that captive, once being set free, has a choice. He can turn around and put himself back in a prison in which he keeps the door slightly open or he can walk out of the prison cell and penitentiary altogether and begin to live a life for Christ and never go back again. Who do you want to be? That's what Paul is saying. We'll stop there. We'll come back and uh, pick up next week in verse 10 because we have communion this morning. I'd like to have you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11 here, and I want you to think about something and what we just spoke about here, okay? Uh, I'd like to invite the musicians to come up here for a minute, and we're going to have our worship song, but 
We'll look at verse 23 in chapter 11. I, w- I want to draw your attention to this. Jesus, he didn't turn around and muzzle sheep. He didn't turn around and muzzle sheep and try to hook them on chains and all types of things to put them in prison and lock them in like that and hook them to a chain fence. No, you know what he did? He says, the sheep hear my voice. Where I go, they will follow. We're meant to roam free. We're meant to roam free that way beautifully. You know, that, that's what God has declared. And, and as we come to the love feast, the agape feast this morning, as we come to the, the, the Lord's Supper, we, as we come to celebrating communion here, this dude, do this in remembrance of me. I can't think of a, a, another thing that I'd rather focus or look upon in this other than the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ, the grace, the love, what's been poured out before us. Because all of that is part of what God the Father intended through the Son, Jesus Christ, that work on Calvary. It was all tied into it. Not only have we been forgiven for our sins, not only have we been turned around and set free, but we have now been given the most beautiful, precious relationship with God than, than I think any other saint at any other time in, in all of humanity under this new covenant. And that's what we want to memorialize. That's what we want to celebrate. And I want to look to a better time that's still yet to come. And that's the rapture of the church. I want you to have your heart ready. Hold nothing back. Let's take a moment to worship. Um, Please, just worship our Lord together in spirit and truth here. And then we'll come together and we'll... We'll partake of the elements together here in you and your home and we here. And then we'll, we'll have a closing song and we'll praise God.
give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because He's given Jesus Christ His Son. And now let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. Because of what the Lord has done for us, give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. Go ahead and get your communion elements ready here. You, by the way, if you need communion elements like that, we have some at the church in these little sealable cups and different things. If you need anything, uh, I, I'm praying by the next time we have communion together, we'll, we'll be able to have it here in person, and we'll have these um, so that we don't have to worry about touching different, you know, all that. But um, but if you're in need, please call the church. We want to give you a couple of these so you have them in your house and you can partake. And if you didn't get to partake with us today, let us know. We'll get them to you so you can you can come in here and pick them up and we'll, we'll get them to you so we can partake together. Well, let's look in verse 23 as Paul had received from the Lord. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Father, that's exactly what we want to do. Lord, we want to proclaim your death and resurrection. We want to proclaim your coming. We know you're coming for the church. And Lord, we, our heart's desire is that everyone will get saved, Lord, every single human, so that we will all join you at that wedding feast in heaven as we would be raptured out of here. Lord, I pray, I pray specifically for the East Shore and West Shore areas of Harrisburg here. I pray for our communities, Lord. I pray for the, Lord, the singles and the widows and the orphans and, Lord, the children. Lord, I pray that they would come into the fold I pray for the homeless shelters, Lord, and the, the places where people are gathering, Lord. Just in a mighty way, use all of us to be that salt and light of you, Jesus. Let us get out of our comfort zones. Let's get out of our comfort, Lord. 
Let us be available to serve you. Jesus, we proclaim your coming. We love you, Jesus. We believe in you. We believe everything you've said. We, we believe as we sang this morning. We believe. So now, Lord, let us partake together with you. Let us remember. Let us look forward. And Lord, let us give thanks. We pray all this in your holy name, Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, Messiah. Amen. Let's partake together. I'm going to close us with prayer, and then we'll have a song of worship. And I, I want to just encourage you to have a blessed day today. A day where the Lord Jesus Christ reigns in your heart. A day where you look to God more than you look to man. Where you look upon the blessings of our Father, His Son, and our Holy Spirit, Lord, that just continue in spite of all the circumstances and difficulties and trials. That you have given us life and life more abundantly. That your gospel, Lord, is a gospel of hope, a gospel of truth and love. And that as we pour out, Lord, your spirit upon others, Lord, there would be a drawing into the fold. That many would be humbled and come in and rejoice. And all, Lord, all of heaven would celebrate. We would all celebrate. Because we long to be together, Lord all of us, in our homes, Lord, all over the world, the body of Christ united as it's always been destined since the time, Lord, that you said you would gather all nations, all nations, Lord. We praise you and we thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray, bless your people. Help those that are sick, Lord. Help those that have this virus. Help them to recover quickly, Lord. I pray, God, stop the evil and the lies and the, the, all the false news and media, all those that are trying to take advantage of this crisis to, to work a you know, an agenda of hate and evil. And Lord, just as we read even here today, bewitching people, Lord, with evil. I pray, God, that you would bring an end to it all, Lord. And then, Jesus Christ, you would show your power, your magnificence, your glory, and that you will deliver all of your people. And then we will turn from our wicked ways. And we will cry out to you, God. And we will ask for forgiveness. And we will follow you, Jesus. And Lord, you will come and rapture your bride and your church. And we ask all of this by your mighty name, Jesus Christ, in your holy name. Amen. God bless you all. I love you all. Maranatha, keep looking up. Your redemption draws nigh. Let's praise our God.
King. 